Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's a scandal trifecta here in D.C. Between Benghazi, the IRS, and the AP subpoenas, can the White House get out of their own way? Is this a big deal for the White House, and how are they going to handle it? We'll analyze all of that, and we'll have special guest, Celicia Wilkin, AP News Writer of the Year for Oklahoma. She'll be on to talk about the crossing of the lines between government and the press. This, and tell me the story today, on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Roundtable talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio, broadcasting from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, how are you today? Doing fantastic. Uh, to my 12 o'clock, he is the former. Uh, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin, and I want to report that the IRS has not found me yet. No, they're, they're looking. <laughs> they're looking. To, to his left, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, last serving under, last count, four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, and a distinguished and very charming fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is the former chairman of the Democratic Party in the great state of Maryland, longtime Washington insider, Carl Tuvin. Hi, Carl. Hello out there. Hello, Justin and everybody. Good our, to be here. Our female portion of the show, Denise Krepp, is in London this week. She sends her regards, but she will not be joining us, as is it's uh, close to bedtime there in London. Hey, uh, it is literally just drinking from a fire hose on what to start with. There is so much going on since we last broadcast live two weeks ago. Uh, it is amazing what is going on, and the White House continues to spin in turmoil trying to deal with all these. It is a trifecta of second-term issues, scandals, however you want to look at it. Where do we start? I say we start on the latest, on, on the uh, the last week's discussion, which is the issue on Benghazi. 
For those of you who have not been following Benghazi, uh, last year, late last year, September 11, 2012, a terrorist attack was uh, was undertaken against our U.S. consulate in the city of Benghazi, Libya. The attack not only killed our ambassador in Libya, but it also took the lives of three additional personnel there traveling with the ambassador. Uh, since that attack, we have seen uh, UN Ambassador Susan Rice saying that these it was just a rowdy group of individuals who were responding to a video, an anti-Muslim, an anti-Muslim video that was put out on YouTube. We've also since seen intelligence reports that have been confirmed by allied intelligence agencies that this, in fact, was an act of terrorism. It was a planned terrorist attack. Uh, last week, the Senate, uh, the, Senate, uh, Oversight, the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee held a, uh, a hearing regarding this issue, and it turned out – I'm sorry, the House Oversight uh, – the House Foreign Affairs Committee – Oversight. Oversight. House Oversight Committee – there's so many things going on. It's amazing. House Oversight Committee. How I think the attack took less time than you're talking. Well, I'm trying to set the stage here, folks. House Oversight Committee, led by uh, Chairman Darrellis, uh, has uh, undertaken the investigation and called three key witnesses, including the charge of the affairs in Libya at the time, the regional security officer at the time, and a security specialist, former DS agent. Uh, so much to start with. Number one, I want to start with you, Alan Moore. This is something that has really got the White House on edge and really nervous about the backlash of this. How actually big is this possibly to the administration? This is a fascinating thing. A few days ago, there it looked like, the in, in isolation, it looked like the Republicans might overreach on this issue. Um, it, there's stuff here. There, there's important stuff here, regardless of the dismissive comments that, that, the, that the president made, which earned him, by the way, this morning, from the fact checker of the Washington Post, not one, not two, not three, but four full Pinocchios for a comment he made just yesterday about Benghazi. Having said that, it was interesting question. The Republicans have a tendency to overreach. Both parties do. But let me remind. But what happened since then was, as you point out, the IRS scandal, which it is, and then the AP scandal, which it is. The technical term for this, for what's happened to the White House, this is a shitstorm. That's the technical term. It's a family show. Remember that, Alan. But that is a term I love. It is. Absolutely amazing what's happened in five days. Benghazi suddenly it fits into a pattern of bad actions, bad decision making, and different levels of covering up what happened. This is a disaster for any White House, including this one. Benghazi has is now part of the larger narrative and gets a different level and kind of attention than it would have even five days ago. Before we get into the politics of this, let's look at the actual response of this. You are talking about you're talking about a situation where you're talking about a situation where we have an, an ambassador, a seated ambassador is killed, 
Three support personnel are also killed. Uh, and there is a series, apparently, of emails that have gone between the embassy in Tripoli and State Department headquarters in Foggy Bottom here in D.C. that say, look, we've asked for more and more security. Bob Hines, we were talking about it before. It seems that this wasn't a communications issue. This was a an issue beyond all concept. Would you agree with that? Well, it's, it's clear that for some reason, whatever it is, and I don't know, uh, there was no security with the ambassador in any real sense. I mean, here's, a, here's a, uh, a, our highest ranking official in the country. He is in a city which is almost totally, <coughs> I wouldn't say totally out of control, but it's a very, it's a very loosely run place. Uh, there is almost, there's no really strong government in that area. There's no, there's no official body of, uh, there's no police or army or anything like that to protect. And we had no, uh, uh, the usual situation in, a, in any kind of a diplomatic location uh, of the United States is to have some, some Marines around to be a guard for that diplomatic official who's in that community. We didn't seem to have any there at all in Benghazi on the night of what, the attack. What it seemed that if, if the regional security officer in Tripoli says, look, we are shorthanded, it is a very tenable situation right now, that Foggy Bottom would have, or at least Department of State Security would have said, hey, we got to make some changes here. we got to move on this. What is the holdup possible? Well, I haven't the faintest idea what the holdup is. I have no idea why there was no response. Is it Alan Moore? Well, it, the, the, the department has said we have constrained resources. Fair enough. Everybody knows that. Then the question is, if you're not protected, why do you go? And, I mean, I, I feel for the loss of these, of these people, not least of all the ambassador who had done fabulous work, but one wonders why on 9-11 he went there at all, given what was known to be a very exposed situation. Well, now, in, in, defense, in defense of that, though, I mean, you, you're talking about a city where the Americans were largely held in good regard. You're talking about an ambassador that had spent years garnering relationships and garnering support for the American efforts to help the revolution in Libya. And... And arguably, Benghazi was a stronghold of pro-American feeling at the time in Libya. At least that's the reports that have come out even before and since the attack. He was, the, the ambassador was something of a hero in Benghazi with certain people in Benghazi, but not everyone there. And it was 9-11. 9-11 is not a big deal, just a big deal in America. It's a big deal all around the world for those who would want to do harm to America. So... It, 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 yes, it looks as though we we did not pay sufficient attention to some of these warnings about the exposure and weak and potential vulnerabilities of the two of the two locations in Benghazi, the consulate, and then this other location, which was a, a largely a CIA-run operation, which was the second target. So there, there's the question: What did we do? What would do, did we do wrong? 
before that day? Well, we didn't pay sufficient attention. What did we do on that day? There's a big question about whether we responded with all that we could have. And then the third piece is, what did we do after that day? How did we talk about it? All three areas are legitimate areas of inquiry. Carl Tubin. Let's go back to the <clears throat> to the beginning and how he got there. First of all, as as Alan has said, he was a big personality in this country, and credited with doing a lot to to to, to bring things together. He might have had he might have felt in his own right, I can go where I want to go in in Benghazi, and I'm going to be okay because most of these people like me. That could have been on his mind. Uh, secondly, I think the, the it, it is important, as Alan pointed out, and I want to underline it, that budgets have been cut as far as security and safety of our embassies. Now, that might have been a very, very bad decision, which I think it, it is, and uh, of all places to cut, it shouldn't have been embassies. But, but and let, let, let me interrupt you for a second, though. When you talk about budget cuts, there is no question that the U.S. government, through DOD, through our intelligence community, and through State Department down at Foggy Bar, had made Libya a priority and had diverted money to support the operation in Libya, which I would think would include enhancement of diplomatic security. Is, does that not make sense? It should. It should. And, and you know, uh, as you as as Alan pointed out, this was a CIA building spot. So, what what responsibility well, does the CIA? Let me, have let me just correct you on one thing. Let me just correct you on one thing there, Carl. The, the the building itself was a State Department run building. It was in fact our consulate building in Benghazi. So, you know, were there intelligence operatives working out there? One could say yes or no. There but are two locations. There are two locations. Where the attack happened was the actual consul building run by State Department. First attack. Well, that's the attack that actually caused the damage. And well, and no, no, the, the second attack also did huge damage. I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. But what I'm saying to you is, you know, just in correction, is that the, the building where the ambassador himself and his three support personnel were killed was in fact a State Department building. And, and, that's, and that's part of the argument. That's part of the argument that says, look, we've diverted money as, as a government to support the Libyan effort. That should include, and in any other operation that I ever know about, it is always included enhancing security at our diplomatic facilities in country. Congressman, now you had a comment. Well, <clears throat> we got so deep into the weeds on this one, I don't know if we'll ever get out. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, the irony here is that the Republicans move very, very quickly to try to politicize this issue and try and see if they couldn't damage the Secretary of State, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, with this. If they had waited a couple of weeks, they'd have had two honest ones, which we will get to in a minute, and you will not hear me defending the administration on those. They'd waited, they'd have had some legitimate thing, and they wouldn't have had to muck this up. I think they've muddied the water considerably. Clearly, when you kill the ambassador and a bunch of other people, that requires an investigation. And uh, and, and and then when the administration uh, hasn't got its ducks in a row and says incorrect things, perhaps out of incompetence, perhaps that's being too kind to them, I don't know. 
but you, you've got a situation that you that you've got to deal with. But you don't have to politicize it, and I am still extremely irritated with Daryl Issa for having moved in and tried to uh, to make a partisan point on this when he didn't have to. An investigation, absolutely. Yeah, but wait, but, I, but not, not. But now wait a minute, Congressman Al. Respectfully, you know, when you talk about politicizing, Diane Feinstein has come out and said publicly that the talking points after Benghazi were, and I quote, wrong. Those are her words. I didn't say that there wasn't something wrong. I'm saying that that ISIL <laughs> tried to, to to make a partisan pay out of it. It was a bad enough situation without doing that, and as it turns out, he didn't need to do it in order to make the administration look bad. Bob Hines, do you agree with that, that that, that uh, Chairman Issa and, and the Oversight Committee politicized this, or are they just doing their job? Well, it's hard to distinguish. I would have said just, the, just what Al said. It's, in, in, the, in this kind of a situation, uh, it's going to – the mere fact that they're holding an investigation tends to politicize it. But it need be done. But it need be done in an appropriate way. Was was the ISA hearing last week appropriate? I think it was fair. I think uh, it was fair. Carl Tuman, you disagree. You know, after and then, you know, when you when you mentioned the former Secretary of State thirty five times in a hearing, um, uh, and, and you, you kind of target her and other people target her, uh, I don't know if that's fair or not. I, I, and also, uh, you know, there's the pick, Pickering and uh, one other person who Mullen. has done a report. Mullen. 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 Yeah. Mullen done a report. Two very respected diplomats. And I said kind of, you know, well. Uh, well, and Pickering, a former diplomatic corps member, uh, Admiral Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But the funny thing about that is, in testimony, the key, the key, uh, the key witnesses in front of the House Oversight Committee, not one of them saw the actual classified briefing that was associated with the after-action report that came out. The Accountability Review Board did not provide any of the key stakeholders with a copy of their report for comment, which I don't think that's politicization. It, it strikes me as, and I support John McCain in this, this stinks of cover-up. Am I wrong in this, Tom? Well, uh, let, me, let me first respond to something that Carl said, because he left an impression that doesn't happen to be correct. He said that we will get the facts. That Hillary, yeah. that Hillary Clinton's name was mentioned 35 times. I think the number was 32. We won't quibble about right. that. It was first mentioned at the outset and 16 other times by Democrats who were trying to defend Secretary Hilton. But they brought Clinton, her name Clinton. up. Excuse me, Clinton brought her name up first, and and went aggressively to sort of defend her before anybody had said word one about her. So was around and count. Well, he's the one who brought up the number, Al. But you seem very well informed on it. You're spending time counting. I didn't count. I'm reading what other people say, and I'm just trying to get the facts right. What I'm doing. Well, why? But 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 he gives the impression that a bunch of people 35 times are attacking Hillary Clinton, and I'm saying half the references to her were by people who were trying to defend her. Is this about Hillary Clinton? Not really. Although for some people it is. The whole question is this a meritorious? Or is this political? The answer is yes. It is both. It is both 
trying to figure out what the heck happened and how we stop I, it I from happening that. again and how there's it is no a political. Way, you bet it is. Bottom line. There's no way that it isn't both. Alan is exactly right. The reality is this kind of a thing is always political because, you know, it's admitted to the administration is one party. The House of Representatives is the other party's control, and they're obviously when there's going to be an investigation, there is going to be politics on both sides. That's the way the world works. Call to The whole thing is is what Hillary said when she was before the committee, and that is that the important thing is is to find out what happened, the truth about what happened, and also how can we try to defer this from happening again. To one of our diplomats. That's the important thing. The oldest other stuff is BS. Bob Hines. On, on that point, let me just step back a little bit and, and say something that I feel strongly about. No matter for what reason, no matter whether it could be successful, no matter whether we have any idea what would have happened, I, I have one really serious problem with the idea that nothing at all was done by anyone in the United States government, in any department or any place else, to try to do anything to protect or help the, the people who were in that building while the attack was on. Now, obviously, you're not going to be able to, uh, uh, there weren't any Marines around it like there usually are in a diplomatic area, but, and they probably couldn't have gotten anybody from Libya. I don't know what could have been done. I have no idea, but I do know this. You know, south, southern Italy is only a couple of hours away by plane. If that. If that. And they got fighter planes in, south, in southern Italy and a couple of bases down there. And if they did nothing but fly over the damn place, well, Congressman it Chavez. might have done something good and nobody tried. And wait, let me finish one more thing because it really bothers me. You know, uh, you know, we have a wonderful way in our military, you know, they have, a, they have a thing. Never leave anybody behind. When anybody's in trouble, get them out of there if they possibly can. That's what the military does to its own. We didn't, and this is diplomats, not military, but by God, we didn't even try. And it really upsets me. Congressman Al? This is where I think the investigation should have been headed. I mean, we, we, we immediately, it happens, and, and they set out fighter jets to try to bring down the Secretary of State. Instead of ask, asking all of the questions you just raised, every one of which is legitimate. Which, by the way, those questions were asked during the hearing, and, and, and one of the most vocal members of the committee uh, was Congressman Chavez uh, out of Utah, who actually understands the synopsis was calling out why weren't the ready response teams in Italy and surrounding areas mobilized at least in the air to try to respond yeah, to it. I've got no problem with that. What I've got a problem is with the chairman, Isa, who is a partisan guy to his toes and who yeah. led off trying to make this as partisan an issue as he can. And it, as we're talking here, there's plenty of legitimate things to be raised. He didn't need to do that. Alan Moore? Well, I, I, I have a little different view of, of how partisan this was from the outset. I think it was so rich with opportunity that he, could, that he uh, the chairman, could lay back just a little bit and they could have their cake and eat it too. They could look at the legitimate questions. What was, mistakes were made beforehand? What were made during? 
and what was done afterwards. That's, that's and, in, and in so doing, you are going to bring up what personalities did. You're going to get changed but the documents my, in the White that's House. That's my point, that if he had just laid back and let things roll out, he would have had everything he needed to make the administration look bad. Instead, he's calling, he's blaming the, the Secretary of State before she's even heard about it. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's maybe made that, 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 a, that a mistake from time to time in the past. In this case, it's, it, it, is that an objective of his? No doubt. Does he have to accuse her? No. Let the facts roll out, and it's not. And it's not See, so you much. You and I agree. Why? Why are we disagreeing? Well, because you're you're talking about how he handled the hearing last Friday. No, and I'm I don't not. think he handled it the way you're saying. No, he did. I'm not saying that. I am saying that the, the first words out of his mouth, practically, were that Hillary Clinton was somehow responsible. I don't believe I, I don't, that's true. Well, let me ask a question. Let me, let me ask a question, Congressman. Now. As, as, as the chief executive of the State Department, who is routinely briefed <laughs> on security issues that are key, in key areas, i.e., in a, a country like Libya, does she not inherently hold a certain responsibility as to the overall protection of her diplomatic corps? Uh, of course. But what, if anything, went wrong there was something to be determined by a, an investigation, not be the, the lead of from the chairman of the committee as to what he's looking Carl for. Carl Tubin. Three things. Number one, Hillary took responsibility uh, for, for what happened. She said, I'm Secretary of State and it's my responsibility. Number two, um, uh, the Speaker has, has gone crazy over Benghazi. Probably thinking, oh boy, we really have an issue here. Uh, and number three, Rand Paul has been out on the hustings talking about how Hillary should be ineligible for higher office or any office. So but last time I looked last time I looked neither neither Boehner nor Rand Paul sit on ISIS committee or involved in that investigation. Correct. People Correct. are gonna say all sorts of crazy things. But, but you don't Call think, you don't think that the speaker has any influence on the Rand Paul? I mean not Rand, Rand Paul, no, 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 I no, 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 Bob Hines? Not much. Bob Hines. Of course, of course, as the Speaker of the House, he has some, you know, vague authority general. I would suggest to you that if there's anybody who is a judicious and careful guy, it's the Speaker, number one. Number two, if there's anybody who is the opposite, it's Mr. Issa. And I, if, I would agree with that. And if Issa had come up with the statement you made just a few moments ago, rather passionately, I thought, I would have had no problem with that. That is not what he did. And he didn't have a sufficient evidence, in my judgment, to do anything. Well, Congressman, we, we do have a disagreement on what exactly he did. No, I, I, I agree, with, I agree with Alan Moore on this, and, and I agree we're not going to solve it today, but one of the things I do want to point out is that it, the attacks on the administration and on the State Department and on Hillary Clinton are not necessarily just sided with the Republicans. I mean, Dianne Feinstein has been very critical in this situation and believes that there needs to be further investigation. I agree with her. You're missing, you're missing my point. My point is that before anybody had a chance to figure out what they really should be doing, and they, they pretty well have now, that the Republicans were after Hillary Clinton 
and the administration. But and the Al, administration's Al, Al, fair game. Al, I want to disagree with you because when, when you have an accountability review board who is chaired by a distinguished member of the diplomatic court and a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that is submitted to the State Department and not given to the key stakeholders for their review. Talk about in the weeds. But that's part of the what argument, I, what, Al. I am, what I am saying is very, very simple. If, if the Republicans had merely let things unfold, they would be in the, the position they're in now, very frankly. And they wouldn't have had, had it smudged with an effort on partisanship. And then they have handed two great Christmas gifts uh, with two other issues following it up. Which we're going to be talking about here in the next minute. And, and you'll find me much less defensive on those. What Bob Hunt. that probably said is if the two discussions we're going to have in a couple of minutes had come earlier at the same time or ahead of the Benghazi issues. Right. We probably would have not had such a heated conversation exactly. here, because right. it, because we probably would had have less of a uh, of a of an ability of ISA to make as much as he did of it, and stay to the facts and, and not try to go too too broad. Right. Yeah. Reality was now we've got a situation where there every time you turn around you open the door there's another scandal going on. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let that be the segue into our next segment. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back. We're going to talk about the other two scandals that are facing the White House right now, that being the AP and the IRS scandal. That's going to take up a whole hour of discussion, including our special guest at the top of the hour. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town
friends, uh, but it doesn't take me to get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. He's coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Soon as back in town. Oh, that woman's back up town. Oh, my, 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 my. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. All of our blood pressure has gone down. Yeah, we've had a little bit of a decompression (laughs) mode. Uh, We're continuing to talk about the scandals plaguing the Obama administration right now. Uh, What we've got right now is a situation dealing with the IRS. For those of you who were so attached to Benghazi, just when you thought couldn't get any better, now we find out that the IRS had been targeting right-wing conservative groups, including the uh, several Tea Parties in several jurisdictions, uh, to see and claim that their 501c3 status was, in fact, uh, either not valid, illegally gotten, however, but this has now come into a whole nother mess. Congressman Al. And it might be worth noting at the beginning of the discussion that there is nobody around this table that I am aware of who's a particular fan of these ultra-right-wing groups. So whatever we say is not going to be primarily partisan. Well, let's let's go back and look. Apparently, this this was brought to light inside the IRS when uh, acting IRS Commissioner Steve Miller was informed that the IRS was targeting conservative groups. This is according to our friends at Politico back in May 2012 when he was a deputy commissioner then. Uh, it was it was brought up when these conservative groups went to members of Congress saying, hey, we're being bullied by the IRS. We think this is political. Things came out. Certain comments were made. Lo and behold, we have a political mess at the IRS. Uh, Congressman now, I'm sure, even regardless of partisanship, when you use the IRS for, I mean, blatant political gain, that's got to be troublesome to you, even as a seated member of Congress. Well, it it, it is, and it it was. Uh, in some, the, the IRS had a reputation twenty years ago uh, for just being flat out mean, if not partisan, just just being very very harsh about how it uh, went about its job. This, uh, <clears throat> and what I suspect is, is that the people behind this probably are not. Very good politicians because they didn't they didn't handle it in in, in that way. But uh, so so they they may not have been doing it with partisan motive. It still is absolutely wrong. No one the the tax system should never be used to investigate that kind of thing. But Bob Hines, you're talking about this going on during a heated congressional campaign in the I mean literally in the middle of what was a torrid campaign to begin with. This does not bode well for the administration. Apparently, according to an inspector general's report, an internal inspector general's report in the IRS, as early as 2011, the Cincinnati office at least, as well as an office in Laguna Niguel and someplace else in California, were doing this kind of thing with respect to uh, right-wing organizations, and this was known in a, this is in a report that the inspector general made, and literally it was a year, approximately a year later, 
when there was a congressional hearing about this, and the, then the acting director uh, said, in effect, they weren't doing this. So something is kind of crummy there in the IRS. Well, I mean, and there's other people. I mean, you look at uh, uh, the former head of the IRS, uh, Shulman, um, uh, Doug Shulman, who, who basically told members of Congress when this first came to light in the congressional offices, mainly at the district level, they said, no, 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 this is not going on. This is silly. It's just something that we do as part of our mission. Uh, this... It, this is absolutely not the case. He's going to have to be held accountable, as are the people who are actually doing the auditing. Alan Moore, I mean, in a time where the IRS doesn't have a lot of favor, in a time when they're talking about reforming tax codes, then this, I, I mean, how big of a shite storm does this become for the Obama administration, along with all the other stuff that we're going to talk about? This... <laughs> This is about as bad as it gets. What, what, what this particular item brings forward is memories of Richard Nixon and, and his abuses of the, the IRS. There are other people who have used the IRS, but if you are a president of the United States in modern times, the last thing you want is a reference to Richard Nixon and to your own administration to be in the same paragraph the same sentence, the same article. And that's what you get here. Now, is it the same thing? No. No. President Nixon used to <laughs> had a team of people identifying people who he wanted to have harassed by the IRS. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the first who did this. It wasn't it didn't start with Nixon. Nixon took it to New Heights. This doesn't reach that level, but what this does is it smells like that. It it it, it has a whiff of that. It's it's a decision made by the group of, of folks that oversee tax-exempt uh, organizations and all these new applications that were coming in. Who do we look at? How do we pick them? Well, let's, some of these new right-wing groups, let's, let's, let's at least take a good look at those. How do we identify them? It's, you, you can see how mid-level bureaucrats might think that that would, be, that would make sense. The problem, again, is... Once it became known to higher-ups, it was not stopped, it was not acknowledged, and even in the last few days, misleading comments were made about what was done. This is a big-time disaster. I mean, Carl Tubin, I mean, this does scream of Richard Nixon and Watergate. No, it does scream of Richard Nixon and Watergate. The problem is, is that uh, the IRS and this particular group in Cincinnati, which I think is the is kind of the home of where these investigations come. Uh, a few years ago, they came after veterans organizations, and uh, uh, I, I do work for Vietnam Veterans of America. We weren't targeted, but other veterans organizations were. So, you know, it's 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 something that these people decide to do, and they they go out and they they do a lot of other 501c3s uh, to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, I, this is outrageous. I mean, <laughs> as a liberal, and I, you know, I don't have any tact for Tea Party or whatever in the right wing and the whole thing, but this is over the, over the edge. Now, for, for the record, the White House has claimed total deniability in any knowledge of this actually happening 
even as far back as 2011, even as far back as 2012 in May, when then Deputy Commissioner, now Acting Commissioner, uh, was notified that this had been happening. Alan Moore. Yeah, the, the only exception to that so far, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is the only one in fact, White House Counsel, the White House Counsel, was informed on April 22nd, so the report goes, that the Inspector General of, of the IRS was doing a report and this was the issue. Apparently, this kind of information gets transmitted constantly. The White House Counsel's antenna didn't, didn't jump forward to say, what? What? I need to know more because when is this going to come out? It actually came out semi-accidentally last week as the head of this unit at a conference made was asked about this issue and talked about it because she knew the, the IG report was coming out. Once again, the White House did not get out in front of this issue, which it would have been hard to successfully tamp down, but... For them to be surprised like that, oh, except that the White House Counsel's known for three weeks, um, it's just a little one more unfortunate piece of the thing. But Congressman Al, when you, when you look at the fact that White House Counsel was notified back when, uh, and it took the news breaking of this happening to get the Attorney General Eric Holder to start a criminal investigation on this out of DOJ, does that surprise you? Does this look like a knee-jerk reaction out of the Obama administration? Let me answer that this way. Okay. I think that uh, I, I, I can recall back when uh, when the, the IRS was doing all kinds of really mean things to all kinds of people, and it, it didn't have a partisan touch at the time, but it was it was rough rough handling by bureaucrats of American citizens. And I remember that I went to a friend of mine who was on the Ways and Means Committee and, 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 and complained about it, said you should have some oversight. And he said, and that's what I'll bet you almost all of these guys were thinking, they've got a tough job. You know, they've got to enforce these rules and what have you. And he, 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 he kind of passed it off. And he was a good friend of mine, and I was a little surprised about it at the time. I think people can lull themselves into the belief that these guys are just doing their job, and it's a hard one, and we need to support them. Rather than saying they've got a job which which inevitably will get very close to this kind of thing and should have tough oversight within the agency that they are not doing this kind of thing. So I think that went from the White House, the holder, on down through the uh, IRS and all the rest. You probably have got less evil intent here than you do in Benghazi and some of the other issues, but it still says that we've got an agency that has the capacity to grab you by your private parts and jerk hard, and uh, that agency needs to uh, be watched very, very carefully. Bob Hines. To follow up on what Al said, because I, I agree exactly, it seems to me that the one thing that a president doesn't want to have happen is is being in his Oval Office when the when the tax people are doing something wrong. Or like targeting here. political targeting, organizations targeting, the opposition yes, exactly. during every election year. Now, because there's everybody pays taxes. Everybody wants to believe it's fair. Everybody wants to believe everybody's treated the same. 
Everybody wants to believe they're playing above, you know, with the rules. And when they discover they're not, it's the worst thing almost that can happen to the White House because, they're, you know, that's the one thing everybody in the country has to pay taxes and nobody likes to. Carl Tubin. You know, part of it, I hate to say it, is the negligence on this administration. Um, um, Sheldon Cohn is a, a good friend of mine, and he was IRS commissioner under Lyndon Johnson. And he told me many times, Lyndon Johnson would call him and say, come down to the White House, I want to talk to you. And they would go down to the White House and Sheldon would have his people carry two or three uh, valises with them with stuff that they were working on. And, and Johnson would ask him, what's going on in the agency? What are you working on? What is good? What is bad? And there was communication. Now, we don't know how much direct communication there is between the commissioner and the president. And, and if there was, this might have been handled a lot differently. But, but Alan Moore, when we talk about, and, and, I, and I concur with, with, with uh, Carl on this, is that the direct line of communication, the commissioner of the IRS does have to operate his own agency. He doesn't have to board the day-to-day -day operations of the organization to the White House. However, the second that report gets to White House counsel, which arguably might as well go in directly into the Oval Office, at that point, there should have been either a response, an investigation, or something to dampen, at least get in front of and, and, the issue. And I absolutely agree with you, and there wasn't that kind of sensitivity to, to this. They're just doing their job was probably what went through that, their mind, too. Alan Moore? Yeah, I'm still trying to catch my breath after Al's reference to jerking hard on private parts. <laughs> but... But in, in, in response, I wasn't talking about your. Oh no. my God! No, no, I assumed you were talking about your own. <laughs> family show, kid. Family, family show. show. Family, family time. Hold on, hold on. I thought we escaped the the bad part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It up. yeah thanks a lot for that picture. Alan Moore, finish up. We, 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 as soon as he grabs his uh, Alan Moore, finish up. Because on his cup. Who brought up masturbation? Al. I didn't bring it up. Uh, can we? Can we? Yeah. Sequestration? I thought we were talking we about <laughs> So, anyway, keep going, Carl. I keep going, Alan Moore. Um, the, the, the problem here is that, you know, if you just look for what the White House counsel heard a few weeks ago and today, this is the kind of thing that a well functioning operation. Little antenna go off, you say, uh-oh, what do we do? we got to get out in front of this. This is going to come out soon. We need some heads to roll because this is a case where, sadly, you do need heads to roll. No White House, as, as, as Bob sort of alludes to, is so stupid as to try to use the IRS anymore. I mean, that is, if there's any no-no. That's so Watergate. That's so 1970s. Right, right. It's so, yeah. you know, what you don't want to do, and I think, for all the mistakes this White House makes, that is not a mistake that a White House would have made. The mistake here was not communicating appropriately, not showing immediate outrage, not having a plan, if you will, to you know being forewarned to be ready to respond. And, and uh, now what we've got 
is a is another major investigation, and it may be that 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 the Justice Department, which has sullied itself on this AP business, which we're going to talk about later, but it is the governmental agency that would be doing the investigation of the IRS, does not have the kind of credibility, especially this week, and there will be calls for a special committee, a select committee, think, to come you, in and take a look. Does this warrant independent counsel? Well, it may, not because I love independent counsels, because I'm not a big fan, but because of... <laughs> the caca storm that that uh, we're, we're we're wrestling with and 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 DOJ's own problems from this week from Fast and Furious and other things that it they're going to have to think hard about whether they need some kind of in, independent investigation. Congressman, now I want to pose that same question to you. Does this warrant independent counsel? Is DOJ so muddied in all this that? There should be an independent counsel. I think I think it's premature. It's possible, but I think it's premature. Uh, it, it looks to me like you're dealing with incompetence here, not evil intent. Uh, and it certainly doesn't look that way, though, Congressman. What do you mean it doesn't look that way? What? what look, I mean, again, this screams of Richard Nixon and creep all no, over no, again. No, it doesn't. Oh, no, uh, I no, think no, this look, is look, 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 look. I've already explained to you. Oh, here, let me put it this way. Who was it that said oh, what we need is somebody who's run for county commissioner in, in this area? We, the, the, the IRS needs a politician, somebody who understands politics, not there to protect Republicans and Democrats, but there to say, fellas, you're too close to the line, and this can blow up in the president's face. And uh, and I think that that if the agency sets up some kind of oversight, like it should have a Republican and a Democrat retired, not you know to to, to protect partisanship, but to understand politics and be able to explain it to otherwise a bunch of accountants who haven't got any sense of it at all. Bob Hines, I think that it is probably wise for the administration if things get any deeper, and I don't know what's going to happen. An independent... Independent counsel. Independent counsel might be good to take the heat off the White House. I mean, if the White House... I mean, I don't think the White House knows anything at all about it. But the fact of the matter is, they if they keep trying to be the defender of and check it out and do it, it may look like, you know, they're trying to protect themselves. An independent counsel may be the best thing they could have to have an independent decision, you know, it's an out there. Carl Tuman. Well, two things. First of all, uh, <coughs> Holder has asked the uh, uh, the uh, uh, U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia to start an investigation on Friday. That's number one. Happened this afternoon. Number two is the first thing that should have happened is when the the counsel in the White House saw this, should have handed it right over to the chief of staff and might have even informed the vice president's staff about this so they could all start to work on this and and to, to kind of see what it is and work out a plan as to how they're going to answer all these questions. There's no and question. that wasn't done. There's no question that the White House is literally just punch drunk from this particular scandal. Uh, Jay Carney today gave a presser about this where he was questioned and he couldn't tap dance faster than he could try to stay around it. His big quote 
was that he's getting uh, now a lot of heat for is, quote, we need the independent inspector general's report to be released before we can make any judgments. You know, one person's view of what actions were taken or what that individual did is not enough for us to say mm -hmm. something concretely happened that was inappropriate, unquote. Now, Jay Carney is taking a lot of heat for that answer. This is something that a lot of people in the White House apparently knew about way back when. Alan Moore. Yeah, we'll find out how, how many people knew, knew what. Jay Carney, let's face it, has had a, not just a bad week. He's had, <laughs> he's a, had a bad second he's term. He's had a bad year, and we've talked about this in the past. But on Benghazi, he got his private parts in an awkward place when he said, oh, we only changed one word before the final talking points. Oh, wait, oh, never mind. There were 25 different changes of talking points that the CIA prepared. Pardon me for counting here, Al. The first one, I didn't count all the words. The first one had had nine lines. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, had 19 lines of, of, of writing. It bulked up to 26 lines of talking points and ended up at eight lines of talking points. That was what Carney characterizes, we, the one word got changed. And, and then he's tried to tap dance on that, and he's tried to tap dance on this. I believe that one of his first reactions to this was, well, the commissioner who was in place at the time was a Bush holdover. Tax commissioners, as Carl can tell us, these are tax jocks. For good reasons, they're not politi politicians. They're people who are acceptable to both parties. This guy was accepted to a five-year fixed term by a, by a Democratic Congress because Bush set up a name that was acceptable to the Democrats. These guys aren't politicians. They're not supposed to be. But, as it's been said, they would benefit from having a county commissioner around or somebody with a little bit of political smarts to say, whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Bob Lines. I just want to say that I feel so sorry for Jay Carney. I mean, I mean, any way he looks, he's getting pie in the face. There's something worse than pie in the face. I mean, he he's, he's got to go out there. I, I mean, he's arguably. got to go out there, and he's got to he's got to every day he's got to talk to the press. And there's there is nobody saying how's your mother. They're doing a whole. They're asking a whole lot of hard questions, which he doesn't know what the answer is to, and there is no good answer he can possibly give. Congressman, I'll let you go first, and then I'll comment, and then Alan Moore. Go ahead, Congressman Al. Well, uh, it just occurs to me that this administration <coughs> has developed a political brilliance in terms of election campaigning, how to how to get elected, and you can't really fault them for not being very good at that. I don't think they know diddly about once you get elected the small p politics of, of working things out and and it it, it showed up in in so many other ways of, of the, how the president handled the health care bill and so yeah. forth and so on alan moore you know it, it, it's <clears throat> interesting being press secretary to a president is a very tough job carney's not doing it very well now would that matter it hasn't mattered a whole bunch because we can argue about this if we want to, but I think there's a fair amount of evidence that the press has been pretty darn kind to Obama, and they're taking flack for that, and so there's a little built-up 
feeling about, no, we're not, no, we're not, we're fair, we're reasonable, and now this comes down, watch out. You know, I got, when you turn the press and you add in the AP piece, watch out for this press you know, story. I, I got I to gotta tell you, though, you know, in, in, in Jay Carney's defense, I mean, first of all, Jay Carney has just, I mean, you want to talk about somebody that's taken a right hook every day uh, for the entire term that he's serving right now. Uh, Jay Carney is giving the message that he is given by the White House communication staff, by the chief of staff, by the president's political leaders. He is just giving a message. And I got to say, Jay Carney is being vilified. He's giving answers and tap dancing as quick as he can. He just can't drink from the fire hose quick enough. Well, Bob, the first the first rule about scandals is get it out fast. Get the facts, know what happened, and get it out fast. This White House seems to work on a different theory. Let's dribble it out. Let's kind of bob and weave, and it only gets worse and worse and worse. I.e. Nixon. I don't, right. I don't think there's anything like Nixon going on here, but you get the same problem. People start getting looking at it and saying, my God, there's worse stuff that I can believe. What else is going on? Well, that, well, that, that, that leads to a good point. I mean, is, now, is this something that could do irreparable damage to the administration? Congressman Allen, I'll start with you. That, that requires one to look into the future more than I am able okay. to. Uh, but potentially, uh, of course, if, uh, if, if things if things go south from here on. But, but Bob Hines, we're, we're going to talk about the AP issue shortly, uh, and um, my guess is that um, the press is going to stop being uh, as kind to the president as it has been in the past four and a half years. I think they're going to be more uh, uh, sharp questions. They're going to be they're going to go in not so much as adversaries, but you know, prove it to me you're right. I think I think he's got a permanent problem that is that he has that has happened, given the situation. Not of the scandals we've talked to so far, but the one we're about to talk to. Yeah, when we I'm going to segue into that. When we come back, we're going to have a special guest, Lisa Wilkin, who is the chief political and government reporter for the Claremore Daily Progress out in. Uh, Claremore, Oklahoma. She was just voted the best new journalist by the AP for government uh, for government reporting that she's done regarding you know inappropriate behavior by government officials. And she's, in fact, knows about what it's like to be on the back end of having a government agency come after you. She she'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us for the second hour. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics, premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, 
scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the Great Humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Washington, D.C. It's the best political show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. And it's the top of the hour, which means that we're ordering our drinks, cutting open our cigars for our second hour of what has been a scandal-perfect storm for the White House show. Uh, Joining us right now out of Claremore, Oklahoma, is the chief political reporter for the Claremore Daily Progress, the, the newspaper that brought us Will Rogers to fame. She is Felicia Wilkins. The best new reporter in Oklahoma. How you doing, Salisha? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing fine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what we're going to talk about is the issue of the AP uh, situation. For those of you who have not seen the past 24 hours, it was reported late yesterday that the Department of Justice served subpoenas on the Associated Press, taking 
large-scale email uh, accounts and two months. Two, I'm sorry, two months, two months of email accounts, phone records, including desk phones and cell phones, and uh, Alan Moore. It wasn't emails. It wasn't emails. It was I, I, okay, just phone records. Right. Uh, it was uh, several individuals and then some centralized offices. Right. So basically, what we've got is and a Department of Justice subpoena being served, those records being provided uh, in accordance with the subpoena, but when asked about it, the Department of Justice doesn't give an answer. Uh, it is very vague as to why and how the reason came up for this. Uh, Alan Morley, start yeah, off with you. Well, the subpoena was not served on, on the AP. The subpoena was served on, on uh, the, the phone networks, so they got this information uh, for for a two month period of last year, but only recently informed the AP what they had done, prompting the AP to write to the Attorney General saying, in effect, how dare you? Right. And we want all of our records back, uh, or all these records to be destroyed, and then publicized it. So that's how it. That's how we tell. 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 We
we tell 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 we t
Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. Hey, welcome back to Background Politics. Sorry for the technical. You know, when you run a live show, it is absolutely amazing on how this goes. Uh, we're going to continue on this on the uh, topic, and we'll rearrange the show, but this is obviously a topic we want to go back on. What we're talking about is the recent AP story that came out yesterday, uh, where the uh, Associated Press found out that the Department of Justice had served a subpoena to the phone, for the phone records of various reporters, their desk and cell phones, and basically came out and said, hey, we're just going to take these, giving no reason whatsoever. Uh, it is called into question. The reasoning, and it is called into question, a lot of First Amendment rights here. It is a very sensitive situation. Uh, joining us on the phone right now is Slisha Wilkins. She is the... Uh, Chief Political Reporter at the Claremore Daily Progress in Claremore, Oklahoma, the newspaper that gave us Will Rogers, and she has also recently been named the Best New Reporter by the AP. Salisha, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Salisha, real quickly, um, the story of the AP uh, broke yesterday, and it's calling into a lot of issues. This is a very dicey, thin line we're dealing with. As a reporter... How does this make you feel? I mean, this has got to give you a little bit of pause, knowing that the DOJ can do something like this. Absolutely. I know that they've called it outrageous and appalling, but I call it obnoxious abuse of government power. Um, one thing that nobody has mentioned yet um, is the impact this will have on a reporter's ability to obtain a source. Uh, of course, we're dependent on sources, and if, if I was at working at the AP and uh, this happened to me, I'm pretty sure I'd have a lot of people that would not be willing to talk to me after this. Um, and it goes so much farther than just the inconvenience of being able to tell a story. Uh, their real issue should should be with the individuals that have agreed to their security clearance and not with the press. Uh, we're simply trying to do our job, following our First Amendment rights, and um, this thing is, is kind of – it's just – blown way out of proportion. Um, it's scary, truthfully. Uh, 
Salisha, now you have been reporting on government for a while. You broke a story uh, regarding a, a congressman that came out of that area uh, and some possible ATF dealings. You also have been uh, writing stories regarding the actions of the district attorney down there. Uh, you're familiar with uh, how government sometimes crosses a line in First Amendment rights, freedom of the press, and protecting its own operation. Where does that line cross, at least for you? Well, I think one of the biggest obstacles I face is um, well, it's kind of a, the government gets real defensive about their transparency. Everyone likes to give it lip service, but um, when actually providing records to the public, it's a completely completely different story. Um, where I, I kind of consider this issue with an AP and obviously an offensive measure. Uh, you know, they're not even asking for permission; they're just going in and taking what they want. Um, for me, every day I, I'm, I'm constantly requesting. You know everything from email documents to court documents, and you know here as of late, I've just been told flat out you're not going to get them, and it's it's very frustrating as a reporter um, because it's prohibitive. It doesn't allow you to do your job. Um, it, I don't even know how to describe the the frustration level um, and the excuses that constantly these these government officials hide behind. They're they're hiding behind their their legal um, attorney-client privileges, their their rights. Um, under different laws, it's kind of a, an issue where the First Amendment is superseded by any any other legal precedent that's been um, upheld by the Supreme Court. And uh, I'm sorry, it's just very it's very frustrating. And there's a lot of things that I can't discuss because of um, the legal action that I'm involved in. But I will say that um, the public should become more aware about what their rights are under the First Amendment, what open records are available to them, and they should start speaking out because if they don't, we're going to see more and more actions, you know, not only like the ones I'm dealing with, but the ones that the Associated Press is now dealing with. That's going to become more commonplace, and it will affect everyone. And Salisha, can you talk about, uh, you know, there's work coming out of Claremore that there were destruction or uh, destruction of emails inside uh, the DA's office down there. Can you talk about that? I really can't talk about it at this time, but I can tell you that um, um, there are definitely some high-level government agencies that have looked into this issue, and um, I think they will continue to do so. Yeah, Congressman Al, you are, uh, prior to being a congressman, you were an uh, Emmy Award-winning broadcaster. Uh, you know, when you hear the stories, <clears throat> excuse me, when you hear the stories coming out of you know, out of Salisha and the story coming out regarding the AP. Why is Congress not more fired up immediately about something like this? And as a broadcaster, you think that every media outlet in the world would be concerned that they're never going to get another source again. Well, of course. And, and, and Elisa, I think. Salisha. Salisha. Uh, pardon me. <clears throat> Commented on that, I think, very effectively. Uh, the the, the thing that troubles me is in the in the years that I was in the business it's all changed and what has changed is you no longer have three networks uh, and and that's it and and those were all uh, I would say highly professional uh, and objective and responsible and responsible uh, entities <clears throat> now I don't want to drudge up, and I use that word intentionally, uh, 
what has happened since. But now you've got all kinds of people that are doing very questionable things in the media, using the First Amendment as a protection for uh, things that I'm sure Walter Cronkite or David Brinkley would have been appalled by. Uh, and it makes it extremely difficult then for, for guys like us and you, Celicia, to, 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 to make some distinctions because you want to protect the First Amendment, but you also want the news media to be, to be relied on by the public and to be trusted by the public. And these, these uh, not internet, the, uh, the cable, some of, some of the cable things are really, I think, beginning to erode the ability to think. Bob Hines, you were the uh, former vice president of government affairs for NBC, uh, a major network media outlet. How would you have responded to the subpoena had this been served on your organization? Well, I would have called the general counsel and said, you take our part because I ain't going to get near this thing. I hate, but the truth of the matter is, uh, I think Alan is exactly exactly right. The, the world has changed a great deal. We have we don't have the same kind of self uh, uh, censorship, if you will, of sens in, in sensitive areas that we used to have. We now the idea is to rush out and get anything you can and throw it out in the public eye. Now and it it kind of I think the basis good journalism. But the fact of the matter is that. Uh, Anybody gets a hold of something, they're going to they're going to put it out there. Now, that doesn't mean that the Justice Department can go and subpoena people, the APP news people, uh, without let they ought to be they, they ought to at least have to be told what what people are looking for in the Justice Department. I mean, I find that really offensive. Well, and, and let me let me add, Congressman now, so so that my earlier remark. This is wholly unjustified, what, 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 what uh, they've done to AP. And I'm not suggesting that, that, that that's not the case. I'm merely suggesting that, it, that the, some people in the media fuzz the line so that you don't know whether you're defending good journalism or whether you're defending everybody that wants to just throw some crap out there and see yeah. if it sticks. And most journalists... I'd like to add something to that. Yeah, no, Celicia, please do. Okay, first of all, I think that journalists do have a certain amount of accountability, um, or they should. Um, ethics should be their top priority. Everybody would like to get the first story out there. They'd like to have the breaking news event. Um, but there has to be some accountability, and that should come from their editors and their publishers. If you have a journalist that's not acting appropriately, then they, need to, they just need to be fired, in my opinion. Um, on the second side of that, if the government is allowed to do things like this, what's going to be next? Are we going to have to present our stories to them to read before they can be published. I mean, there's a clear line here, and they've crossed it. And, and the government should be accountable for their actions. Uh, you know, I, I would would not be a bit surprised if there's going to be a huge lawsuit that results from this. Alan Moore. Um, well, I think accountability is, to, is going to come in the both in the political process and through the news media. Uh, it's rare that you see uh, politicians united, and in this case united, with uh, most of the news media, everybody is trashing the administration on this one. Now, having said that, there, 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 there is a legitimate 
reason for the U.S. government to try to protect certain national security information, national security secrets. The particular issue that triggered this whole god-awful business was a major breach of security relating to something that happened in Yemen when we were able, through a source, to identify the possibility of an of a American airliner getting blown up. Well, that information that, that allowed people to figure out who the source was was released. That was a horrendous breach, and that was against the law. Was it against the law for the, for the press to publish it? Interesting question. I don't think so. It was against the law, though, for some U.S. government official to share that information. And this kind of thing happens from time to time. And the Justice Department goes after a reporter. And we've had reporters who spend time in jail when a judge orders them to give information and they don't. They're held in contempt and they spend time in jail. It's a serious business. What's unprecedented in this case is... In light of that particular fact, the Justice Department said, tell you what, we're going to not only figure out, gather information on the people who are both reporting and editing this, we're going we're to get information from 20 other phone lines that 100 different reporters use. That's the unprecedented piece. That's the, the piece that really frightens everyone, and as Salisa says, that's what scares people into being a source. There are people who might have been a source on something going on at the agriculture department who were talking to an AP reporter during that time period and suddenly figures there's phone records on that. What's happening to those phone records? Oh my gosh, am I going to get fired? Is somebody going to point at me? It was it was the scope of this subpoena and the information that was gathered that has rallied everybody to this cause. Yeah, and Salisha, I know you can't talk about it, but, you know, I mean, this is not only at the federal level. I mean, you're experiencing some of this down at the, at the state and local level as well. This has got to give you pause as far as your ability to do the job of reporting sourceable, reliable facts to the public as information. Absolutely. People don't seem to understand how difficult it is um, to be able to report a story um, with accurate facts uh, in a small town. I mean, you have everybody knows everyone here, and to get a source that's trusting you and will turn over information that they know could potentially have them, you know, fired. Um, there could be charges filed against them. They could be ostracized. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen to a source in a small town. Um, it's difficult to develop those relationships, and when the government comes along and, and criticizes work that you've done um, because they don't like the, the end result of that story, yeah, people get gun-shy. They, they run away. They don't want to do it. And, and now when you have, uh, you know, on a federal, a federal case here where the federal government has crossed that line, I mean, I can't imagine how anybody would want to talk to a reporter. I mean, and without those people that are willing to risk so much to make stories happen, to, to make sure that people see into what all the dark corners have of government. And you know, how in the world can we possibly have any change in our government without that kind of transparency? I don't know. I just find it to be extremely difficult um, to see where this path is going to go and how, as, how, how any journalist can possibly um, continue to do their work without questioning who's looking at what I'm doing, who's going to be you know, looking into my records. Carl Tugan. 
I th- you know, I, I think what what has been done is wrong. And I think though that we have to look at where we where we've come from. When the Yemen situation uh, occurred, there was an outcry by both Democrats and Republicans and the president saying that we are going to go to the ends of the world to find out who leaked this information. And I think that part of that outcry kind of maybe maybe gave a little impetus to the Department of Justice to say, okay, we really need to find out what's going on with these with these leaks and where is it coming from and what is it now why they why they only seem seemingly only uh, went to the AP to do this and uh, especially going into the uh, press room and the House representatives and tapped all those phones uh, is is beyond me but I think I think you can kind of see how this built up to where. The Attorney General might have said, well, we've got to find out. Everybody's saying find out where it came from. Alan Moore, one of the things that, that we'll have to figure that we'll, we will eventually learn here is whether this is an unprecedented uh, one-off case that was so extraordinary that for the first time ever, the, uh, the Department of Justice extended its reach so broadly into a, into a particular news organization if they decide, if if it's concluded that this had never happened before, and darn it, it's never going to happen again, then the question is, will people believe it? And that gets to the point that Salish is making. It, this may have been so unique that it hasn't happened before, and given the universal condemnation that has occurred, it may never happen again. But a lot of damage has been done. And you and and when who will make that determination that never happened before and hey trust us won't happen again um, it it's there there's there's Humpty Dumpty sort of fell off the wall and is broken and it's really going to be hard to put it back together given the extent of of, of this outrage. But I, I I guess Alicia the question to you would go that you know if if this were a matter of national security and and. And, and, and a lot of times you see that, you know, national security is very much subjective. You can't report this because it will violate national security, whereas this is a key fact that the public has to get out there. How do you balance that with you, your editor, and your publisher out there in your paper or as a reporter in general? Well, first of all, you have to have a good relationship with the people that you're you know, not only your sources, but your your local government officials, regardless of whether or not, you know, they're a fan of your work or not. Um, you have to develop at least one person in that organization that you can trust, that you can go to and you can say, okay, this is the information that I have. Um, can you give me any feedback on what the long-term impact is going to be if I break this story? Uh, you know, you try to do what you can on that side. If you can't, you know, it's it's truly a judgment call, and, you know, that's not something I make by myself. I'm I'm just a reporter here, but... You know, I always, I'm always looking at the worst-case scenario, you know, because it is important for reporters to consider the impact of their work. Um, now, saying that, there's also you have the responsibility of what will happen if I do not tell the story. You know, what is the potential outcome for the public if they're not informed? And so you have to balance those two. I think one thing that's interesting with this case is that there's no talk about all the um, other options that the 
Department of Justice had? Did they exhaust those? Why didn't they get the phone records of their employees? And um, you know, people that they th- they're looking for this leak. Well, these people they obviously know their obligation if they're government government employees. Uh, you know, ha- why didn't they do that? And then the fact that they're not really offering any real explanation for why they would go after these phone records. I mean, that's just as troubling as what they've done. And I do believe that, you know, if you look into it, uh, you will find that there are probably other instances, probably not 20 lines, but there are probably other instances where they've kind of crossed over into that gray area. Uh, This one's just uh, hit so close to home for me that I, you know, I question, uh, is this just a a gateway drug of uh, government action for what they're going to do next? Wow, good point. Salisha, uh, is this going to make is this reporting coming out of AP going to make your job harder as a reporter? Well, I think if uh, on a probably any high level story that I want to do with people, uh, other government officials or things like that, that sources I have, they're probably going to think twice about it. But locally, most of the people here. Um, they're very selective about their national news. I'll just put it that way. They they probably aren't going to pay that much attention to it, but but I'll be thinking about it. Very good, very good. Hey, Salisha, uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for putting up with the technical issue. Uh, we'll definitely have you on again as things develop on this. Salisha, and congratulations on your award. Thank you. I appreciate that. Not a problem. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Salisha. Uh, uh-huh. When we come back, uh, we're going to go into free form. Uh, Go into Tell Me a Story. Uh, this is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelley's Backroom for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and furred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelley's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelley's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Official sponsor of Back Room Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, ain't misbehaving. Saving my love for you and you, especially you, yeah. I know for certain the one I love, I'm through with flirting as you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like that honor. Washington, D.C. This is our final segment, and our favorite segment, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about all the news, innuendo. I mean, we can't top the three scandals that are going on, but eventually somewhere, <laughs> there's got to be another story out there. And again, our thanks to Shalisha Wilkin for the Claremore Daily Progress for joining us last segment. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Bob Hines. Tell me a story. Uh, thank you, Justin. Um, 
I am fortunate enough to be a, uh, a trustee of the Gerald R. Ford Foundation. I have been for a number of years. Uh, as uh, the introductions uh, say every week, you know, I used to work for Mr. Ford when he was minority leader of the House, and I was also his counsel, his parliamentary counsel on the floor. I was parliamentarian for three conventions, two of which he managed as chairman, and I worked uh, when his, he was uh, nominated as vice president when Mr. Nixon had the problem and uh, with Mr. Agnew had to resign. So I've had a long, I had a long history with him, and I have been uh, a, a member of the board for many years. And it's a very, it's a great honor for me uh, to be sitting at table with people like Henry Kissinger and Brent Scrocroft and Jim Baker and you name it. And they're sitting right next to me. We're all talking, and it's just it's a wonderful experience. Well, this year, 2013, is it's centennial of his birth. 100 years. He, he died about uh, 45 years ago. And so it, the, uh, the event was the event of the annual meeting of the board of trustees was we moved from Washington, which you has always been, we moved up to Grand Rapids and had a most wonderful time up there. It was just magnificent. The, uh, and instead of having just business meetings and things of that nature, we had several opportunities just to talk about Mr. Ford, either in formal, informal ways with, with uh, members of the media who knew him, members of his own staff who wanted to talk about it, and anybody who wanted to get up and say something. And it was just, it was so moving to listen to people talking about a man with great, who had great integrity, who, who, took, who took some very tough decisions, including one that may well have cost him the election, uh, the the uh, pardon for Mr. Nixon, which everybody has agreed was the correct thing. Uh, and I wanted to just tell a couple of stories that are, one of them is funny, and the other one is, 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 is shows you the, the kind of a man that Mr. Ford was. Uh, the first story I'll tell you is that story. When he was president, uh, he, he spent, as, as we all know, several, you know, several, uh, major parts of his of his 28 years or so, months or so in the White House in international matters, you know, Helsinki Accords uh, being the most, I think, successful and the most important. But he also spent a good bit of time making sure that the allies of the United States, were, you know, were allies. And he was uh, he was on a trip to the Philippines and Asia. And before he left. Uh, one of the messmen in the White House, person who, you know, the mess in the White House is not, you know, uh, like a smorgasbord. It is a very, you know, it's, it's a it's a small it's a, dining area. It's a small dining area. We're not talking with, about Nixon. No, no. It's a small dining area where the senior White House staff, guests who are in the White House, et cetera, have lunch, have dinner, have breakfast, whatever it is, you know, as they work their way in the White House meeting structure. And one of those persons is was a, a a Filipino gentleman who had been there for about a decade, and uh, Mr. Ford got to know quite well. And so when he was going to the Philippines, uh, he had uh, arranged his staff had arranged to talk to the Filipino administrators who were handling the visit to say that he would like to meet the parents of this gentleman who he knew to be still living over in in the Philippines. And Mr. Ford wanted to meet them and say hello and say how much he appreciated his their son's work in the White House. And uh, he had finished his meeting, 
with, the, with President Marcos, and they were getting, you know, they were finishing their meeting, and the uh, the first lady, Amelda Marcos, came into the room, and uh, she said to her husband and to the president, uh, "I'm sorry, Mr. President, but we cannot cannot be at the at the state the state dinner we're having tonight. Uh, he just wouldn't be appropriate." Mr. Ford said to the President of the Philippines, I'm sorry, but it, it won't be appropriate or possible for me and Betty to be at the state dinner unless the, this couple is permitted to be there. I want to meet them, and I want to thank them for their wonderful son that they have. Wow, can that's you, great story. Can you imagine everybody just about choking? Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. It's amazing. I can imagine. That's the kind of a person Mr. Ford was. I mean, he, the, the, the Nixon, you know, pardon was not something he did because he was trying to help Mr. Nixon. He was trying to get it behind the country. If it cost him the election, he was going to do it. I was right there when he did it. Right. I was that's there a, when that's he signed That's a great it. story about a great man. I'll tell you one other story, because this is a funny story. Okay. And we'll end this on a happy note here. Okay. Uh, the story is about Mr. Ford when he was minority leader, and Tip O'Neill, his great friend, who was the whip in those days. They'd been out playing golf. They had a drink in the clubhouse. They were walking out to the parking lot to get in their two cars and, and, and go home. And Tip and Jerry had their arms around each other, and Tip said to Jerry, and I know this for a fact because this story I told at the group, and I heard it separately from Jerry and from Tip. So I know it's true. They walked out. Tip puts his arm around Jerry. He says, what are you going to do tonight, Jerry? He says, oh, we've got some friends coming in from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Their kids went to school with our kids. Everybody's in the house. We're going to have some hamburgers and cook out in the backyard and just have a good time. Tip said, that's wonderful. That's a great thing. And Jerry said to Tip, Tip, what are you going to do tonight? He said, Jerry... I'm going back to the office and figuring out a way to blank you tomorrow and get to the house. <laughs> and the two of them fell in each other's arms just because they loved each other. And that's how it worked 30, 35 years oh, ago. How and we boy, don't we wish it could be that way today. Well, I, too, have the pleasure of working for Gerald Ford. I worked in the, on the domestic policy staff in the White House uh, for him. And, and I'm, I'm reminded of, of two things that happened with, with Ford and the man who was my boss, a man named Jim Cannon. Now, Jim Cannon died a year and a half ago. He was the biographer of Gerald Ford, and the volume about the Ford presidency was actually published just this week in time for this centennial event. And it's a, it, it's a really interesting work about a special man who was an accidental president um, ridiculed often, uh, vilified, but who was quite a remarkable man and quite a healer in the country. Well, my friend, Jim Cannon, came down with cancer in, uh, in the mid-70s and, and became a cancer survivor. And while he was working on the book with President Ford, they were talking. Uh, while Jim's out, uh, his, his condition was still uncertain, Ford came to visit uh, Jim Cannon and said, and they were talking about cancer, he said, you know, when my wife Betty went public on her breast cancer, it was such a big deal and so highly publicized that doctors all over the country reported that 
that literally hundreds of thousands of women were coming in to learn how to do a self-examination and getting tested. And he said, Betty's courage in going public has saved untold untold numbers of lives. Well, I tell that story because I want, as a lead-in to a shout-out to the news today that Angelina Jolie uh, has has undergone a double mastectomy and reconstructive surgery, and by going public, this is all preventative. She's apparently got something like an 87% chance of developing breast cancer because of her uh, s- some unique aspects of her DNA, family history, etc. She had the courage to do this, to write about it in the New York Times, to talk about it and be talked about, and untold thousands of lives will be saved because of her courage. A shout-out to the late Betty Ford and also to Anthony. Absolutely. Uh, Joining us on the phone right now is our international expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie. Ralph, tell me a story. Thanks, Justin. Uh, Recently, the uh, North Korean president met with uh, uh, President Obama in Washington, D.C., by all accounts, it was a very successful summit, but one of the issues that most people don't realize came up, and that was uh, North, uh, South Korea's relationship with Japan. Uh, President Park expressed great disappointment with uh, Korean-Japanese relations, and she's asked Obama to help uh, in terms of uh, improving the relations between the two countries. However, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe attempted to pass later this summer, where many uh, soldiers from the Japanese Imperial Army were honored and buried uh, many years ago. And this is going to hurt uh, Japan South Korean relations at a time when Obama needs both Japan and South Korea to be on the same page to provide guidance North Korea. Wow, great story. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, real quickly, Take care, uh, guys. Hey, thanks, Ralph. Uh, real quickly, I want to uh, give a shout out uh, to. Uh, I want to take moderator privilege here, real quick. My uh, this past week, I was up in uh, New York for two very meaningful events. My the first one was my godson, my nephew, uh, received his Eagle Scout. What I didn't realize is that he is the third generation Eagle Scout in our family. My father was an Eagle Scout, one of the youngest in New Jersey history. His oldest son, my brother Doug, was also an Eagle Scout, and now his son is an Eagle Scout. I could not be more proud. Uh, The second event was I was there to watch my oldest nephew graduate from SUNY Maritime. Uh, You know, you hear me on the soapbox about the American flag merchant marine and how wasted it is. This is a kid who went to SUNY Maritime on scholarship and wants to give back to the U.S. Merchant Marine uh, community. He wants to join the Coast Guard and eventually go to sea. And I got to tell you something, as an uncle, I could not be more proud. Could not be more proud at all. Uh, but it, it, it really it really took me back. Uh, I'm going to take, I'm gonna take uh, moderator privilege real quick. Uh, Al, again? again, yes. Al, Carl, next, uh, or in two weeks, that's the other thing I have to announce. Next week, I will be in the garden spot of Harris, Texas. Uh, we will have a best of show next week, uh, which will compile several segments of several shows that uh, we've done over the past year. 
We're going to put that together. That will be our best of next week. Uh, the following week, we will be live again, live from Shelly's back room. But uh, when we come back, Carl, Congressman now, you guys get first shot on what? Carl's giving me two fingers. I don't know what that means. Two stories. <laughs> two so- you get two stories. I'll give you two stories. You always say two stories. With that, uh, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Carl Tuvin, uh, Dr. Ralph Winnie on the phone, special thanks to Celicia Wilkin, our special guest from the Claremore Daily Progress, our producer, Alyssa Bonk. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Boy, devil, isn't this the place to be? It is when we get these technical issues worked out. Folks, have a great week. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.